Welcome to Untangling Christianity, episode number 34. I'm John Polstra. And I'm Greg Monteith. And we're here for another episode of Listener Feedback. The feedback is, well, I'd say it's rolling in a little bit. We've got another listener feedback from Joanne mm-hmm. in response to episode number 31. If you're trying to find that, that's untanglingchristianity.com slash 31. We'll take you there. Joanne's comment was in response to episode number 31, uh, which was titled Coerced Obedience, which was the wrap-up to Not a Fan by Kyle Eidelman, chapter 14, if you're reading that book with us. So Joanne's comment was, I really liked Greg's reference to the phrase Abba Father in Romans 8.15 in the context of Christianity being about having a relationship with God. Interestingly, those who enjoy this relationship being, quote, in Christ, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, 9, 11, and 14, are no longer slaves but sons, being adopted into God's family. It was interesting to observe the contrast between this, quote, spirit of slavery and the, quote, spirit of adoption, in his own words, verse 15. I think your podcast is important because, as A.W. Tozer says in Knowledge of the Holy, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, page 9. I think we will always be growing in this area, never completely knowing, because our experience of life works hand, works hand in hand with developing our knowledge of God. One of you said, quote, I understand that God truly has my best interest at heart. This is our basis for trusting God. I think that would have been Greg saying that. It seems that this kind of heart commitment comes from what we learn about God through nature, experience, and scripture. And then Joanne references Isaiah forty, twelve, through 31. And then Greg, you, had a nice lengthy reply, uh, kind of picking up on different things that Joanne had said. And then talking to you subsequent to that, this has kind of blossomed into all kinds of other things that you're thinking of. Also in relation to Melinda's comment, which was episode number... Do you remember? 30, maybe? Oh, I think it was 25, actually. 25. Episode 25. So, untanglingchristianity.com slash 25 if you're trying to find that. So, over to you. Where should we start with this? This one has been a little... I've really uh, valued the feedback from Melinda and now Joanne, and, and, and I'm seeing some similar themes and my response uh, to both of them has actually been kind of similar on this distinction between how something takes place and why something takes place. And um, I, I think I became kind of excited, um, particularly as I saw Joanne's come in, because it was repeating some themes in Melinda's. Melinda's talking about grace. And really, it was a kind of distinction between grace and love. And here, um, you know, uh, Joanne is referencing um, uh, the notion of adoption, but it's sort of adoption versus, if you like, uh, sonship or daughtership. It's it's being adopted versus being a child, and um, and that's she's referenced it in. Romans 8, and there's another very similar reference in almost identical in, in, in Galatians. And what, would we, what would the difference there be, though? Adopted versus being a child. Isn't a child adopted? Sure, a child could be adopted. Um, but I, I think that what, <clears throat> as I'm reading Romans, particularly Romans as general, like overall as a book, I mean, what Romans is trying to do is it's putting forth an argument for the, the 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 legitimacy on the one hand the, the legitimacy that the promise made to Abraham and the covenant that it's finding its outworkings and fulfillment in Jesus as the Christ as the Messiah and that um, as a result the incorporation of I mean there's there's a lot of things going on in that book it's it's very densely argued and um, uh, you know, but but the focus really is to kind of um, validate, if you will, to explain in a way that makes sense and that will convince 
uh, I think, uh, readers that on the one hand, Christ has come in a way that fulfills the covenant that has uh, taken on the covenant, uh, the curse that was due to Israel, that Christ has, um, in so doing, opened a legitimate way for the uh, invitation and inclusion of non-Jews into right relationship with God. And so that's particularly where this adoption notion comes in. And so, you know, having been adopted in, you know, these weren't the people, these Gentiles were not the people that uh, were associated with Abraham. Who is the person God went to? You know, and of course, we don't know in Genesis, God could have gone to any number of, of individuals who, who turned God down, who said, no, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not interested, who didn't follow through. You know, we talk about in Genesis, Abraham being um, faithful, you know, or believing, and it was attributed to him as righteousness. And, uh, you know, particularly though, obviously in the case of Abraham, he, he, he followed through. Right? He made good on those things. And there is a relationship that came about between God and Abraham and then between those of you know, Abraham's descendants uh, through a certain path, through Isaac and Jacob, etc. Um, but this notion of adoption is different because adoption is this sort of technical explanation of how something took place. Right? What were the means of this new situation coming about? And I think that's extremely important, right? And and, and Paul's, Paul's at pains to explain that, right? Romans is is the most tightly argued, the most densely argued book, um, definitely in the New Testament, potentially in the entire Christian canon. Um, and so th- this is a big deal, kind of making the link between Scripture and current situation, right? Current for Paul as he's writing. As he's writing, this is not Scripture. He's writing a letter to the Romans, which we as Christians, later on, as we look back and we see the formation of what's taken place in the history and et cetera, we, we canonize that as being, you know, this is, this is scriptural, right? So, but when he's writing, he's saying, scripture says X, this has happened. And this is not only, uh, it's not a disjunction, it's actually, it's the most wonderful culmination and fulfillment of this this thing, this X, right, to represent the what what Scripture is really focusing on in terms of uh, the covenant and how the covenant uh, will be fulfilled and what the implications of that fulfillment are, and the implications of that fulfillment are a relationship with the Gentiles. How via adoption, we are being adopted. We are not the original children, if you like, which would be the um, Israelites, but we are adopted with full rights, with you know even as heirs, right? So this idea of Abba Father, you know, um, you know, Abba being this, this, this deeply sort of intimate term, uh, like daddy or what have you. Um, and so for me, when I'm reading this and I'm hearing this sort of this, 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 this notion of adoption, um, that Joanne's raising, I guess for me, what this has raised is that in my experience, there is an emphasis almost an understanding that we understand our relationship with God is salvation. Or you might nuance it a little bit and say is about salvation. And I would say, no, no, that's not what it is. Does it come about through salvation? Sure. Is it, does it include a process of adoption? Sure. As a technical, um, as the technical means whereby we are we are in one way in right relationship with God, yes. But is but I think what I replied, the substance of my reply to Joanne was to, to make a distinction between the how, how is something taking place, by what means, versus why, why in two directions, why do it in the first place? What was the impetus to do that, and. Um, why are we going in this direction? Why, why, are we, why are we bothering? Which is the why of purpose. One looks to the beginning and said, why did something start? One looks towards the end and saying, where are we headed towards? And I think if we don't have that, if we don't, if we don't not, not only that we don't have it, but that, that that totally contextualizes. In other words, it puts a complete wrapper on the situation. It's why it started 
and it's where it's going. The fact that it was made possible through, through if you like, um, through adoption. Um, and again, this is where it ties in with Melinda, right? Because we have this notion of sinners saved by grace. That, that, we, that Christians or that people are sinners saved by grace. And so if our relationship with God is about salvation, then the whole thing is about um, sinners who would be everybody um, being saved through grace. So we've got this, this basically this, this process of, I guess if you, if you like, a process of change or a process of acceptance where these things that are entirely unacceptable – those are sinners. Through uh, uh, grace, which is this notion of pardon and gift, are saved, you know, which are, you know, there's an invitation into a right relationship as those who are adopted. And, and that's what we got. Yeah, I think most people would agree with that. Yeah, and I think that's a great, that's a great. Uh, so where, 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 do you, where something tells me you're going in a different direction. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Let or me, you're let me, nuancing it. I'm kind of nuancing it, but but there, there's a bit of sledgehammer in there too. Um, and and maybe here's the sledgehammer. So I've got a birth certificate. The birth certificate says where I was born, specifically, you know, the city, and I think the hospital. I was born in a hospital in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. It says when I was born. Uh, there's a long form of my birth certificate. That long form of my birth certificate indicates who my mother and father are. That birth certificate gives you key details to my birth and to the inception of my relationship to these two people. If, according to Canadian law, let's say I was born 20 years ago. Let's say, let's say I was born much more recently. According to Canadian law, if my parents were to say, you know, we're not interested in this kid, uh, or if, my, if they were to separate, let's say my dad was to say, if he were still alive and he was to say, um, I don't want to pay child support. Well, I can present that piece of paper and I can say, on the basis of this piece of paper, you owe me this. You know, the process would be more involved and it probably wouldn't be me presenting it. It would probably be my mother. But I think you get the point. The paper gives an indication of my status. It shows how, where, with whom, and as a result, why. It shows how this whole notion, of, if you like, of child support well, it almost would be gives realized. You a claim. It almost it gives you kind of the right to to claim sure. child sure. support. Not that a child would claim such, but yeah, I get where you're going. Yeah. So there's a, it there's establishes a, there's a your position. Yeah, it establishes my position. Is that the nature of my relationship with my parents? Not at all. I mean, it establishes my position. If people were to say, you know, prove to me, if the government were to say, prove to us, you know, Mrs. Monteith, that you should be getting child support for your son, Greg. Well, here you go. He really is my son and this really is his father. And I really do, you know, I really am obligated to that. Or someone were to say, prove to me that this is your son at all. Well, I, I can, I can, you know, for various, various ways of, you know, DNA testing, but I could present you a birth certificate, first of all, in the long form, which got my name and his name. It's a government form. It's authentic. And I guess proving our rights, showing our credentials, validating a claim are all different from living in a relationship. Now, I understand the notion of grace, the notion of salvation, the notion of sinner, the notion of God. I do not live in those notions. Those notions are not for me what it is to be in relationship with God. And my, my, I mean, I just have to be straight with you. I don't think that they're, they're meant to be that for anybody. So line up, I'm sort of following you, but not really, but I want to. So line up, (laughs) and I love, no, I love this practical example of a birth certificate, the relationship that, so line up, put that in parallel with how you see many Christians understanding grace and salvation and relationship like i'm not seeing that we're stuck on the how we're so stuck on the how start at the beginning for me so so what's the relationship between the birth certificate and grace salvation god like what what's the parallel there Uh, i think the the parallel is um in other words line it up in the way that you think is inaccurate or not helpful so that i can see it 
Sure. Okay, so the birth certificate, I guess, is, is the, 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 those are the legal credentials. Paul in Romans, um, you know, and, and there's, there is some transition here. There is some transition even within this one verse uh, that Joanne cited, uh, there's some transition, right? But it's really the, 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 the focus in, in Romans is this sort of legal explanation, this argued legal explanation for what has taken place, why it's valid, why we should see it as being a complete fulfillment of the scriptures, why it fully implies the inclusion of the Gentiles, and why that's, and why that's just, it's completely legitimate. And, and I guess the birth certificate mirrors this. It's a, it's a kind of a legal representation of a lived reality. But the legal representation is not that lived reality. It is not that relationship. It may be one. It may be a basis from one perspective as to why that relationship is legitimate, is possible, right? A birth certificate expresses that a parental relationship between me and my parents is possible because they are indeed my parents as at such a date at such a time. And the parallel there would be a self, uh, Christian, some Christians would say that salvation it creates that same link. I think I see where you're going here. It's it's holding to salvation as being the link to God in the same way that you would hold that, or some you could hold and say, well, the relationship to my parents is established based on this birth certificate, which says that I was born and they're my parents. However, but I think I see where you're going. Okay. What's missing is the experience part. What's missing is the experience What we and what we have done and I'm seeing this again and again. We've, we've, I must have raised this in podcasts, I don't know, four or five times in past podcasts about this how versus why distinction in terms of creation. Augustine is the one who comes up with this creation ex nihilo. Creation how? Out of nothing. But we've missed the point. Is that important? Is that, is that how important? Like, don't, don't get me wrong. It's important. Do I think he's right? I, I do, very much. Was it super important at the time, more important than it is now? Because he was pushing back against some Neoplatonic ideas about the origins of, um, of physical existence? Absolutely. I'm glad he did it. It was important. He's right. I totally agree. But, but honestly, it's not the point. The point of the whole matter is not how God created, but why. The point of relationship with God is not how it came about, but why. Why? What, what, what caused God to do it in the first place? Why? Where are we going with it? What is God, what is God, what's God, what's God's interest in this? Right? Why did God bother in the first place? What's God looking to get out of this? What's God, what's God's investment in this? Right? Particularly in a love relationship. If that's what, and this is, this is clearly how this is characterized in the New Testament. I want to know. Right? That's really important. The legitimacy, whether this actually is a love relationship or not, is, is a lot based on where is this whole thing going? What's the point of this? And so my – I don't – I'm not too sure where I want to go with this right now, but I'm going to make this comment. And, and I don't like making comments that I may later retract, but I'm going to make it anyways because I think it needs to be out there in some sense. I think that many, the point I'm getting at and my point of huge discomfort is that for me, as far as I can see, when I hear evangelicals talk, when I go to church services, when I, so much of the content focuses on the how. Do we need to understand the how? Absolutely. The how is, it's critical. But honestly, it's not the point. So would the parallel here be... um and I'm not trying to be crass. Would if if you're to, to make it in in the human terms of the birth birth certificate, could the parallel be you know focusing too much on the fact that Greg's mom and dad got together and that's how Greg was formed? Like that's how Greg got here. And so we're in the similar way we're focusing too much potentially on how we have relationship with God, which is through salvation. Some of that, though, I think how you know, you know how how um, uh, you know 
people make love and have children. I mean, I think, I think that part, I would almost say, is much more of the point, you know? And I think English, as we've talked about, sometimes, you know, English leads us astray. It makes things more difficult. Language hurts us or makes our job harder. And I think in this instance, language does a great job. You know, we, we say that we make love, which is, you know, uh, to procreate. And out of making love, we have those that we deeply love who look back at us. We give birth to children. Making love creates children. How beautiful. How, how apt. How apropos. And I guess what I would say is it's the, the focus is too much on I was born at a certain place at a certain date to two people and therefore these are my legal this is my legal status my legal status is important right i have a right to be in this in the in can as a canadian i have a right to hold a passport why because i was born in, in in toronto to two people who are canadian citizens you can't deny me that right well you know what we're not this is not a question about rights in the one hand it is right the how of adoption, that this is legitimate, that this is a, this is a legitimate fulfillment of the, uh, the Hebrew scriptures is really crucial. But ultimately, for those who are living in that situation, your relationship with God is not salvation. It is not about salvation. It is made possible by salvation? Sure. Now get on with it. Be in that relationship. What's it like to be in that relationship? What's it like to be in love with God? What's it like to live your life being loved by God? How is that making your life better right now? How are you to use, um, you know, think about what Jesus was talking about in, in, in the beginning of, uh, of John. How is your life abundant as a result? How are you flourishing? These are questions that Christians should be asking themselves. These are things that Christians should be preoccupied with. Should they, you know, be seeking to deepen their understanding of how that relationship came about, sure. But I don't think that's a preoccupation. If you're preoccupied with what it means to be in a love relationship with God, receiving God's love, loving God in return, in a, in a way where you are loving God entirely, loving yourself rightly, loving your neighbor likewise, you're doing your job. But what about this? But couldn't there be something to this idea of, so the focus on grace and the focus on, you know, we're, coming up to Easter soon here where the focus is often on the amazement of what Christ was willing to do for us so that we could have that relationship with God. So it seems to me there is, there is some potential value in recognizing and valuing that. Are you suggesting that we spend too much time there or we get stuck there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think on the one hand, <sighs> I don't hear too much at Easter about this how is much tricky. <laughs> sounds totally scandalous. I know it does, you know. But but the more the more I'm thinking about this, the more I'm this whole preoccupation with sinners. Does God see me as a sinner? Not at all. God sees me as Greg. That's who I am. You know, and and this whole there's so many. I remember being in, in my jujitsu class and trying to, you know, I'm trying to apply the technique to the guy on the ground. And I know the only reason he's still there is because this is what we do. If he was really struggling against me, I wouldn't be able to hold him because my technique sucks. But I'm doing everything the guy told, the sensei told me to do. So sensei comes by and I'm like, um, how's it working out for you? He says, oh, not too well. He said, okay, I want you to think about this particular thing. Think about riding a bicycle. And I want you to twist your hand a little bit like this. And I do it and the guy on the ground screams. Right? We're so close. We're so close. Is understanding important? Absolutely. Is understanding the focus? No, it is not. We have, we have, and when we focus on that, when the relationship is about salvation, it's like my, my relationship with my parents is about the fact that I'm legally theirs and that I have the right to a Canadian birth certificate. Are you kidding me? That's not what a parent-child relationship is about. It's about having fun. It's about doing stuff. Sometimes it's about, you know, things that don't go so well and how you work that out. Sometimes it's about obligations that aren't fulfilled and how you, what you do with that. It's about teaching. It's about learning. But it's about love above and beyond anything else. 
That's what that relationship is about. That's what distinguishes that relationship as a parent, as an, as a, as a child to an adult relationship from any other relationship. You know, it's about love. And you see that within your extended family. It's about love with your uncles, your aunts, et cetera, or with your nieces, your nephews, et cetera. I mean, you said a moment ago, the, the scandalous piece, and I don't think I've addressed that. Take me, take me back there. Cause I think I'm missing a piece to what you said. Well, sc- scandalous in the sense that I'm assuming that some people would say that it's not possible to focus too much on Christ dying for us so that we might have a relationship with God that there's, there's, how could you possibly spend too much time there? I mean, it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing act of sacrifice and, uh, you know, and I, I, they would, uh, some people would loop back and say, you know, that's, and that's where the whole grace comes in. We didn't deserve this at all. And so we don't deserve this at all, but instead this person came and gave the ultimate sacrifice so that we could have relationship. Yeah. But I mean, (sighs) isn't that amazing? I mean, how could we, how could we ever not be thankful and grateful for that and remember that? John, if you pull your son out from a car, that's running, that's, that's going to mow him down. And he looks back at you after you're both lying on the sidewalk. Neither one of you got killed. And he says, I didn't deserve that. What's your response? Wait, why would he say I don't deserve that? Because we're talking about, we're talking about a parent-child relationship where something wonderful is done by a parent for a child, something absolutely essential. And the child says, I don't deserve that. Your question is valid. Why would he possibly say that? My he question wouldn't. to you, he wouldn't. Okay, <laughs> I was like, where are you going? <laughs> Why would a Christian possibly say that about God? Possibly. Why say, would you possibly how say would, that about how your parent? Would, how would the translate that into how someone would say that about God? I'm not sure. I see the connection there. <laughs> it's right there. God pulls you out from a car. From in front of a car, you both land on the street. God is your parent. Oh, and I say to God, and I say to God, I didn't deserve that. Do you see, do you see the total disconnect? I bet. I do, I do, but it's like so many, it's so much programming and so much, you know, we're horrible, sinful, fallen people. And if we really got what we deserved, we would quote just well, I was gonna say get run over. I don't like that. <laughs> I was gonna say but if we get if we totally get what we deserve, we would just go to hell. But No. No. God made the promise before God made the covenant. God had no intention of not fulfilling the promise. You cannot be God, make a promise, and not fulfill it. God wasn't duped or surprised. God knew what God was doing. God made the promise before God made the covenant because God had every intention of fulfilling that promise. God had every intention of bringing in the Gentiles. God had every intention of opening up right relationship with God to every single human being, to making that a possibility that people could choose or not choose. In the sense of sovereignty, you know, do we deserve this? Do we merit this? In other words, do we have some claim upon God as sovereign? Not at all. Do we have some claim upon God's heart? Every bit. Every bit. That is foul. That's, oh, that's, I gotta think about that. And it is that, that just, tension that... where people are living with this idea and they're stuck. They're totally stuck. Man, if you cannot figure out that on the basis of love, you deserve everything that God has to offer you. You have not understood what it is to be loved by God and you are not living with the reality that God is your true parent, your true father. Do you have a claim upon the sovereign? Get out of town. You don't have any claim. You're not doing this on the basis of claim. Therefore, what is it coming as? It's coming as grace. It is coming as love, which comes as gift. But is that love something that God will withhold? Not at all. That's not in God's nature. The whole, the whole story begins with a promise that is made by a divinity who cannot but keep that promise before a deal is made on the same topic. It's going to happen. It's, the promise is going to be realized. God gets that. 
We're only cluing into that much later. But the idea that, you know, and it's, it's like when Easter, all I hear about is Jesus suffering. Does Jesus suffer? Absolutely. Was that a huge loss? Absolutely. Was that a huge sacrifice? Absolutely. Can I fully conceive of that? Probably not. But I hear so little about Jesus. Why Jesus did, why did, why did he do that? It's so much emphasis on the pain and the suffering. So little emphasis on the reason and the motivation. Why? Out of what, or, or what intention? Out of love. For what purpose? Read the freaking Gospels at the beginning of every single one of them. I have come to inaugurate the kingdom of God. That's so fascinating. That is what's going on. But it's so subtle because as you're talking, I'm thinking, okay, well, no, they would talk about love. You know, Christ came because he loved us. But then the punchline would be so that we could have eternal life and spend eternity with him as opposed to going to hell. Like the... Would start to talk about love, but the 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 punchline and the conclusion would be heaven or hell. Yeah, and I think the punchline is. You think that you're succeeding? No, the punchline is love. Here's my hand. Reach out and take it, says God. Here's my hand. I've been waiting for you. You know, here's what I think of you. Here's what I know about you. My experience of being in relationship with God is that God knows me more truly than I know myself. God is. God is completely for me in the sense that God has my best interest at mind in, at heart because God knows me. I can trust God. I can rely on God. And in that sort of a context, when we're talking about sacrifice, yeah, there's sacrifice there. You know, it's very true. But when we get caught up in that, I mean, really what we should be getting caught up in is the wonder of that relationship, the intensity of that love, the depth of that knowledge. And the, the, the wondrous possibilities that this notion of the kingdom of God holds, a kingdom which is not mine, right? It's of God. It's, it's from God, right? It's by God and it's for God. And what happens in that? God is realized as God. And what does that mean? God who is truly sovereign will be sovereign. God who is truly my parent, that relationship will be fulfilled. What a wonderful situation. So when I come back and I think about salvation as the how, grace as, you know, as I described it in my response to Melinda, grace is the, um, it's how God's love is expressed. Grace is a, is, a, is a means of expression of love. But if we don't have these things in the right sense, if we don't understand that God is both sovereign and parent, and that these have and not only intellectual, but experiential implications for us. And we're living our lives in this world day to day in the wrong way as Christians. If we don't understand that this is about both love, the love of God as a parent, my parent, my true parent, and about truth, God truly as the sovereign, and the true implications of that sovereignty, the notions of obedience and, and uh, acceptance, you know, me accepting God, me coming to understand and needing to understand that and, and seeing that, you know, and holding with faith to the idea that, yeah, these things are true. I'm not sure how they work out yet. You know, if we don't have that integration of love and truth, truth and love to help balance us out as we go through this, this, this process of living in relationship with God, we're going to veer off. We're going to veer in the wrong way. You're going to go towards too much love. You're going to go towards Greta Vosper uh, and, and, and progressive Christianity. And, um, you know, you're going to lose out on the reality. Ultimately, I mean, what, what seems to me to be happening with those who emphasize love over truth is um, you lose the idea that God is truly there, that God truly exists. You know, we know that things like miracles can't take place. So what really did take place? We know that God, I mean, the idea of a divinity is ridiculous. But love, love is substantial. Love we feel and love we can experience. Yeah, you can. But there's more to it than that. And we veer off in the other direction if it's all about truth. We get notions like John Piper telling us that if God says, listen, I want, I want to sacrifice your sons, that John Piper would be just, just fine with that. We fail to see things like the sacrifice of Isaac in a very specific context. Abraham had no intention of sacrificing Isaac. No intention at all. God has already called Abraham out amongst a whole bunch of people. And we see through the course of the entire Old Testament, this, in, this, oh, the, this hatred 
this, this detest that God has for the practices of, 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 of human and especially child sacrifice that take place. And God has distinguished God's self from these other deities. And then he says, go take your son. God's got no interest in that. By this point, Abraham is just going on. And when he says, you know, God will provide the sacrifice, he means it. He's not, I mean, the whole thing is, is, is played out, I think, in a very, very specific, in a, very, in a context that's very specific to the ancient Near East. And so when you get people acting like this who, who want to turn off the emotional context, the emotional compass that they have, that compass of love, when it comes to relating to God and say, you know, I would do whatever God asks because God is a sovereign. No, you've forgotten. I hope you do whatever God asks as a sovereign and as a parent. And you know what? If it's not making any sense to you as a parent, if it's totally contradicting everything you've got, you've got to think twice. You just took away a big sermon illustration there. Which one? <laughs> <laughs> the Abraham story and acting out of obedience. and that's a, I've never heard it presented the way you just did, though. It's far more complicated than that. It's not an act of obedience. Abraham no, but had, it, was, it was very clear. God said to do it. Abraham was quaking in his boots, if he wore boots or sandals, whatever. And you no, know, a- Abraham thought he was going to have to kill his son. And, and that's how much he trusted God that, you know, it was going to all work out okay, even though he was going to kill his son. Isn't that amazing? But then at the last minute, God tested his faith. And then uh, God didn't need to, uh, why God chose to go a different route, I don't know. But, you know, it it all worked out. And so, you know, we need to trust God in the same way that Abraham did. Yeah, it's Genesis, still there. <laughs> Genesis 22. No, I'm reading it. I'm reading it. Um, yeah, that, that's a good, that's a good idea. <laughs> I think, yeah, we, we have to, we have to dig into that. You know, but no, you but, raise an interesting, you raise an interesting way of thinking of this. Oh, so if, in other words, if, if these two kind of camps that you've, kind of been talking about recently of sovereign father or sovereign and love. Mm. Yes. If, if God is purely sovereign and God commands you to do something, the King tells you, you got to do something. You just do it. Yeah. And this but is if your been... father, this person that loves you is telling you to do something, uh, that's a little different. Exactly. Which is why you need both your heart, which is rightly attuned which is rightly, you know, your, 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 your sense of what it is to be working with love, to be in relationship, your emotional IQ, and all these different ways of saying your health and ability to be discerning in terms of love and to be open need to be working correctly, just as your ability to intellectually to conceive of ideas, to be creative to be, um, you know, interpreting correctly, need to be functional. You need both of these things. You shut down one or the other, you are going down the wrong track, right? And, and I think it's, I haven't done the research yet, um, but um, in, in terms of the, um, the Genesis 22 uh, sacrifice of, of, of Isaac piece, but, um, you know, God distinguishes God's self in the, starkest possible means the starkest possible means against the uh, ancient near eastern you know uh, countries and nations who are um, offering these types of sacrifices they are an abomination to god and and you've got this mature relationship between god and abraham and you've also got the reality that hebrew narrative go and read robert alter uh, he's fantastic on this point. Uh, go and read Meyer Sternberg, The Poetics of Biblical Narrative. The terseness of Hebrew narrative is, is remarkable. So, you know, you, you, people say, well, I don't read in there that, that Abraham wasn't, wasn't concerned. No, you would read it if he was. The way these things are structured is amazing. The artistry involved. But what I'm saying is there's a, there's, this is a mature relationship now between God and Abraham. Abraham doesn't, this isn't going to happen. This isn't going to happen, right? God is not interested in me sacrificing this child. This is not, not happening at all. You know, 
why particularly this needs to happen as a distinction, why particularly this needs to happen, well, I guess that's open for me to, I'm looking forward to finding out as I do more research, right? I haven't taken the time to research this. But the notion that, 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 that God, for whom the practices of, of human and particularly, particularly child sacrifice are abominable, they are an abomination. I mean, these are extremely strong words. God, God will speak out against other nations. You know, there's this in, in the, 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 the kind of the, the Old Testament the attributions of, you know, intense emotion to God. But, but I don't think there's anything in the entire Old Testament that is more reprehensible to God than this. And to think, to think that within the context of a mature relationship, a mature ongoing relationship with Abraham, that this is not well understood, that God as being distinct from the gods of other nations is not completely ingrained within Abraham. And Abraham's like, okay, we're going for a walk and I'm going to go and do a sacrifice. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a role play here. You know, uh, what, what, I don't, I don't, I'll have to go into it more deeply, you know, and I, I, I need to, I need to, to do the particular research, you know, and, and, and look into that. But I, well, with them just, so I just pulled it up too. Genesis 22, the hmm. chapter heading, I'm looking at BibleGateway.com. There, the, what came up was Genesis 22, the NIV version. The subheading hmm. of that chapter is Abraham tested. The idea that God is testing Abraham. Yeah, it could be, but I, uh, I don't know exactly what the test is. Whether or not he tr- well, it, the way I've always understood it is, it's did Abraham trust God enough to just do whatever God said? Yeah, I think I think we'd want to look a little more closely there. But because... I think I also think though the the as you're talking earlier. There is a lot of white space here in terms of what Abraham was thinking, how he felt about it. As you're talking, what I'm realizing is I think, well, maybe maybe uh, research would back it up, but it seems like there are a lot of assumptions going into how I, Abraham felt about what he was doing that aren't here. Yeah, and my sense without having researched it is this is formulaic. In other words... This represents something that for the readers, they would understand as not exactly a rite of passage, but something which from that culture um, was a very prominent way of thinking that God turned on its head. You know, it's like when when Jacob um, and and Esau and uh, God turns on its head the idea of the, the, the primogenitor the right of the firstborn. And God says, no, 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 no. It's not the firstborn. And this, of course, coincides with the idea of Israel. No, no, no. no. Israel's not the greatest nation. It's the least. I'm not choosing you because you're worthy. I'm choosing you because you're little. And out of your little, it will not be because of you that great things happen. And which doesn't mean that God was setting them up in terms of the covenant. The covenant was not a setup. The covenant was fulfillable. God did not give them something that, that you know, it's not like they're, they're like, oh my God, uh, this is a crappy deal, but I'm, I'm faced with a divinity who's going to, you know, they're not dealing with Zeus, right? The covenant was fulfillable. But the, the whole idea that... Um, but wait, well, <laughs> so I'm oh. reading, I'm reading verse 9. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar that and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Yes. So he was all in. He was going to do this thing. But you're saying earlier that, no, Abraham never thought he was. Why would he have his knife out? I'm sure he never thought he was, and I'm sure he... Well, again, if you read through the Old Testament, you've got all these cases aside... From the one instance, there's only one instance where this this is this does not apply, and that's when they take the land. Every time the Israelites conquer a nation or an opponent, there is this there's this kind of formula, you know, go in and kill everything, destroy everything, destroy all the people, and then later on, a few verses later, God will say, and by the way, don't intermarry. This seems like, different, though. Because um, then in I, verse 12, in verse 12, do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now that I know that you fear God because 
Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. So this would be another classic, we need to fear God. And because this is an illustration of someone fearing God, and by fearing God, they did what God said to do. And so this was the test. You know, did did Abraham fear and maybe fear here is trust, maybe more trust? I don't know. But well, again, I guess I, I, I see it as being um, my hunch is it's completely similar to the idea of going and killing everyone, which is a formula. It's a, it's a formula for basically saying, take control. It doesn't literally mean kill everyone because then the injunction three or four or 10 verses later not to intermarry shows that the author's an idiot. Like, you know, come on. Well, who are you going to, who are you going to, who are you, you going to not intermarry with? You just killed everybody. You killed all the women too. You killed everybody. Well, no, you didn't. It's a formula, which means go subdue. For those, and it, it happens again and again. I mean, this is a known sort of um, you, you, trope, if you like, or, 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 or turn of phrase that uh, the, the readers then would have recognized as what it was. Go in and subdue them all, and then do not intermarry. Go in and subdue them all. Do not intermarry. And so you've got Abraham doing this, and I think, um, you know, I'm looking through, I've got a couple, couple books here. I've got Old Testament Ethics by Christopher Wright. Not in there. I would have loved to have seen it in there. That would be great. I've got The Lost World of Genesis 1 by John Walton, and The Ancient Near Eastern Thought in the Old, in the Old Testament by John Walton. And I would really like to find it in here. Uh, let me just see if we've got it in here. Help me out, John. We may have to come back to this because we're probably That's, getting towards the end here yeah well but again, i'm having a, yeah i'm i'd like to get on board with you but i'm having a hard time <laughs> <laughs> i'm not i am i don't know i mean well i've I been critical of others that say that the bible's really black and white and clear but i mean i don't know abraham about to raise his knife and god saying no stop like i don't know how else you <laughs> i don't know how you bring a different meaning to that well, I guess I would say that um, two two things. One is I think there's a very particular context in which that is taking place. That is not a generalizable notion. So if you see that, if you what hear that, what is not a generalizable notion? That 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 obedience to God may call you to sacrifice your children. Hmm. Okay. So you don't buy that? Not at all. No, this is, a, this is a very specific notion, which I also, on my hunch is, there's something formulaic in terms of the ancient Near Eastern period that people are saying, oh, okay, this is a formula for how to act in faithfulness to God, to a divinity, right? That doesn't have to be, and that you'll, you'll notice too, you'll notice very clearly, this never recurs. This never recurs. So is this a formula that the founder of a faith... Abraham, would have to demonstrate in, in a certain cultural context, i.e. the ancient Near East, in order to indicate that that founder's faith is legitimate. Maybe. Maybe. That's what I'm telling you. So am I telling you that this, that this didn't happen? No, I'm not saying that. Am I saying that you should take all the words and, and, and understand them figuratively? No, I'm not saying that. But I am saying that I think this is formulaic. I think what we'll find is that this is a very specific thing in the ancient Near East that relates solely to the founder of a faith. And that uh, you, so you certainly don't see it repeated. You don't see any hint of it. You don't see it anywhere, nowhere else. This is a one-time, one-off deal. And so taking that in the way that Piper does, A, first of all, from Scripture, he clearly misunderstands. If he's saying, I, if I were in the place of Abraham and I would do that, if that's what he is meaning then I would say, yeah, well, I, I probably would too. With those types of sensibilities, like with an ancient Near Eastern context, with that, again, there's, there's, there's so much of culture and content that we don't have yet. And I think, you know, I'd want to put in a couple weeks of study on this and see what I can dig up. Um, but if he's saying, would I do that in, as a general sense? Would I do that now and today? Absolutely not. That would be an indication that I'm insane. That would not be God. You have no evidence of God acting in that way at any other time with any other person, with anything remotely similar to that. 
So if you're taking that as some sort of a standard of what it is to be faithful to God because this is what you understand as truth, you've lost your heart out of the equation. You've left your emotions out, which should be counterbalancing in you and putting the brakes on your actions and saying, whoa, 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 stop. You've misunderstood. In fact, you've left your head out because you haven't gone and you haven't done the work. I mean, if he's going to show me the work that says that this is a common thing, you're not going to, it's not, then why isn't it happening through the whole Old Testament? Why don't you see it happening at every major junction? If this is proving faith as you go along from step by step, why don't you see David doing it? Why don't you see Moses doing it? Why don't you see Joshua doing it? Why don't you see Hezekiah doing it? You don't see it and you won't see it and it'll never be asked for because it's very time and place specific. And I think, you know, I'm obviously asking you to be, to withhold final uh, judgment, uh, final decision on it until I've had the time to do some more research. But I, I think the very singularity of its nature within the text predisposes us to saying there's something very unique and special about this. What it is exactly, we don't know at the moment. I think we're going to get some more clarity on that. And I think it'll be, I, I, my hunch is it's going to confirm what I'm thinking. I look forward to that, hearing about that more. <laughs> it's a bit self-serving, but <laughs> it's still my hunch. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll keep an open mind and we'll uh, see what happens with that. On a future episode. Sounds good, Johnny. All right. Thanks for listening to the Untangling Christianity podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So leave a comment on the website at untanglingchristianity.com slash 34. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are released or other news, subscribe to our mailing list also available in the right sidebar of the website. We welcome your questions, comments, or suggested future discussion topics by email. Send those to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is made possible by Kevin McLeod over at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Tune in next week for a new episode.